Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 17th of January here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, business leaders talk up the global economy as geopolitical tensions flare. The deputy chairman of Rishi Sunak's party quits amid Tory infighting over immigration policy. And we have a special report on the Ukrainian president's 24-hour whirlwind effort to woo the Davos elite. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The global economy is in surprisingly healthy place, according to a raft of CEOs and economists who've spoken to Bloomberg in Davos. From the International Monetary Fund officials and central bankers emphasising the probability of a soft landing, to financiers and business leaders talking of resilience, the economic consensus has been unexpectedly upbeat. Here's what the Deutsche Bank CFO James von Moltke told us. My view is it's a bit of a pinch me moment that we've been going through, that the resilience of not just the economies, but also financial markets um, to the geopolitical crises that are going on, to the rise in interest rates and the fight against inflation has been remarkably strong. Um, Whether that continues, um, I think we're all hopeful. As James von Alka points out, the upbeat sentiment comes despite the prospect of elections for two-fifths of the global population, along with inflation, wars raging in Ukraine and the Middle East, and now tensions spreading to the Red Sea. But even in the face of those challenges, the IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told Bloomberg that there are reasons to be optimistic, with a note of caution. Let me say... 23 comes better than we expected, by a small margin. There is some wind coming from 23 into 24. U.S. poised for soft landing. Interest rates are probably going to start going down, I think, later in the year, but definitely in uh, 2024. The only thing I want to say to everybody here is expect the unexpected. Those key quotes from our interview with Kristalina Georgieva reflect the feeling that while the outlook is currently positive, it wouldn't take much for that to change, a concern that was highlighted by the Harvard University professor Kenneth Rogoff. The geopolitical situations, like nothing I've seen in my professional lifetime. I mean, we've gone exactly where we are in Cold War II, but we're in Cold War II. Could get to be a hotter Cold War II than it was. And that's very destabilizing. But despite Kenneth Rogoff's warning, the possibility that the global economy could sail through a period of unprecedented tightening, relatively unscathed, is offering Davos veterans increasing hope for 2024. Well, China's economy hit its official growth target for 2023, with GDP expanding by 5.2%. But the latest data present a mixed picture for the world's second largest economy, with a measure of broad price changes indicating deflation remains stubborn. 
2023 also saw the biggest drop in Chinese house prices for nine years as an extended property downturn continued. The focus now shifting to how policymakers will step up support this year. Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller says that while he is open to interest rate cuts, he sees no need to rush. The policymaker attempted to draw a balance between ensuring inflation reaches 2% without overly harming the US economy. I am becoming more confident that we are within striking distance of achieving a sustainable level of 2% PCE inflation. As long as inflation doesn't rebound and stay elevated, I believe the FOMC will be able to lower the target range for the federal funds rate this year. Treasury yields jumped in the wake of Waller's comments. Some bond traders were moving even before then, with last Friday seeing a surge in options bets against coming interest rate cuts. Here in the UK, two of Rishi Sunak's top team have resigned just one day after the Conservatives' election strategist urged the party to avoid division. Lee Anderson and Brendan Clark-Smith have both quit being deputy chairman of the Conservative Party so they can campaign for tougher immigration rules. Tory MP Mark Francois says their rebellion alongside 58 other MPs last night means the Prime Minister is on course for a defeat over his flagship Rwanda bill. The numbers speak for themselves and we very much hope that the Prime Minister will listen and that there will be a concession. But Francois's comments highlight the dilemma for Rishi Sunak. Moderate Conservatives like Damien Green say they will vote down the bill if changes are made. There are plenty of bills that pass this place where uh, people will have reservations but will think this is 80 or 90 percent of what I want to see and rational people in those circumstances vote for that uh, rather than get nothing at all. Both factions will be challenging the Prime Minister at PMQs and then voting later today. The French president has announced a host of new policies aimed at reviving support for his government ahead of the European elections in June. Emmanuel Macron's promises included boosting security, increasing civics lessons in schools and a new six-month birth leave for both parents of a new child. The policies and language used by Macron are seen as a more conservative stance in a bid to counter support for the far right. According to recent polls, Macron's party is trailing Marine Le depends by nine points. And some insurers are starting to avoid covering certain ships travelling to the Red Sea against war risks. Underwriters are seeking exclusions for vessels with links to the US, UK and Israel when issuing insurance for trips through the area. Western naval forces have warned the passage is unsafe, but Bloomberg's Paul Wallace says crews are still taking their chances in the region. The other thing to note is that there are still a lot of ships, whether it's bulk carriers, uh, energy tankers, going through that route. Um, Yes, the the traffic's dropped, but uh, Bloomberg analysis has shown that even since Friday when the US uh, and the UK struck Yemen with with missiles, there are still ships doing it. So some companies clearly feel that it's safe enough to, to continue with that journey. Our Middle East Economy and Government Editor Paul Wallace there. The insurance restrictions run the risk of causing problems because of their broad scope. War risk rates have gone into a frenzy in recent days following the US and UK strikes with cover surging to 1% of a ship's value from about a tenth of that a few weeks earlier. 
In a moment, we'll be bringing you the latest in the World Economic Forum in Davos and inside a whirlwind 24 hours for Ukraine's president at the event. But another story that caught our eye this morning, this is how the financial sector in Japan is preparing for an end to negative rates. So as we know, this has been a big expectation in the markets. But mm. Bank of Japan survey actually pointing to the country having a shortage of bond traders who are used to positive rates or indeed anything like that. And as a result, it's injected new life into the industry. These more experienced, older bond traders are now highly in demand. They're Mm. they're commanding higher salaries and there's a recruitment frenzy going on. So if you're someone who was around the last time that Japan was looking at a situation like this, uh, someone perhaps working through the 1980s, uh, you could be very much... That's pre-1990s. That is a long time ago. Higher salaries for some. That's interesting. I mean, in that piece also... Lovely photographs of uh, trading, vintage trading from the 1980s because it is such a long time ago since they've been... Extremely stylish was my takeaway oh, from those photos yeah, as well. Those, those suit styles have come back into fashion. Uh, let's get more now, though, from the World Economic Forum in Davos. While the tensions in the Middle East and in Ukraine have formed the backdrop to this year's discussions, business and political leaders have been pointing to the continued resilience in the global economy. Our head of Bloomberg Media editorial, David Merritt, joins us now for more from Davos. Good morning to you, David. This are two narratives we're looking at, one of economic strength and one of geopolitical instability. How are they playing out in Davos? Well, those certainly are the, the, the two big themes. I, I think you know the most sort of notable moment that I saw yesterday in the conference centre was the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, sweeping through the corridor with an enormous entourage and an enormous security detail around him. Of course, he's probably the number one target for Vladimir Putin. So security has been incredibly tight. And at one point yesterday evening, really brought the centre of town to a standstill uh, as his um, a group of cars went through. Everyone was forced to Detour. So he's been the thing that everyone has been talking about, you know, trying to raise the profile or put, put the, the situation in Ukraine back on uh, the top of everyone's agenda. On the geopolitical front, clearly um, uh, something that everyone is trying to put back on the agenda. And yet the economic backdrop really, um, you know, with the, with the companies here, with the banks, with the technology companies um, talking about, you know, the fact that actually the economy isn't as bad as people were, were hoping. We had some private meetings yesterday um, with CEOs, with bankers, saying the same thing they're saying to us on, on camera with the television, that things could be worse. You know, I think a year mm-hmm. ago, people were worried about inflation, worried about the prospects of a hard landing. It hasn't happened. We haven't seen a recession. So this sort of mixture of geopolitical concerns with also a little bit of relief, the economy isn't as bad as it could be. Are people, though, that you're speaking to convinced that actually inflation's um, sort of been vanquished or, or that we're on the way to that now? Well, there's certainly been a sense of relief that, you know, and, and I, had, I heard this from a couple of people yesterday um, in senior positions at European uh, banks, uh, European corporations that, you know, I'll take this situation. One, one uh, executive said to me, if you asked me a year ago where we would have been right now, um, you know, this fear a year ago that inflation was out of control, that in order to get it into control, the European Central Bank and the Fed and the, and the Bank of England, we're going to have to engineer a real crash in the economy. That just hasn't happened. And, you know, we have some 
bad economic news, perhaps out of Germany, but with the rest of Europe, uh, we had the uh, the governor of the Bank of France on television yesterday. He said, look, there's not going to be a recession in Europe this year. So everyone should be happy about that. Everyone should feel that the European Central Bank, you know, they've done their job. Inflation uh, has come more under control. And yet, you know, we're still seeing um, levels of growth, not rapid levels of growth, perhaps, but we're still seeing the economy moving ahead. So a little bit of relief, certainly, both public and privately, that I've been hearing around the place. And, you know, and again, um, there's a lot of nervousness, a lot of negativity about the geopolitical situation. Yet economically, definitely some feeling uh, of relief amongst, uh, amongst executives here. There are nonetheless risks in the year ahead, Dave, notably from elections. How is the prospect of another Donald Trump presidency being discussed in Davos? Or what are the other big issues that the people that you're talking to are worried about in the year ahead? Well, that's right. And the World Economic Forum put out their list of uh, risks and the things that people are concerned about. Right at the top of that is about misinformation, disinformation, with the backdrop of this very big political year that the world is facing, more than half of the population of the world, going to the polls. And on Monday, we had that record-time victory by Donald Trump. That is certainly uh, in the backdrop here. People are preparing for the prospect of a second Donald Trump presidency um, and trying to be pragmatic about it. What does it mean? Um, what, are, what are the actions that he's going to take? The lots of discussions around that. What does it mean for NATO? What does it mean for Ukraine? What does it mean for the geopolitical situation? You know, people in Davos like to think of themselves as, uh, you know, coming up with solutions uh, for some of the problems the world faces. So, you know, the difference, I suppose, to uh, now versus the first time Donald Trump was elected, which was a bit of a surprise for the global elite. Everyone here feels like they are ready for it. They think that uh, they know what to expect. And so it's being discussed here um, less in terms of um, a shock to the world elites and more of well, something that they've, they've seen before and uh, what can they do to prepare for it. And obviously that news on Monday from the first primary in the United States has really underlined the fact that he very well is most probably going to be the candidate. And so what are the companies, what are the uh, governments who are um, represented here mm. going to do to prepare for that? Yeah. Uh, and of course, got to remember that Donald Trump actually went to Davos a couple of times, uh, 2019, 2021. Uh, and like, a, you know, some other uh, leaders now who, you know, for various reasons um, have avoided it or not attended. So, yeah, quite interesting. David, thank you so much for being with us. Hope you have a great day today. David Merritt, our head of Bloomberg Media Editorial, just laying out really what some of the top executives there are talking about. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. We're going to stay in Davos for our next story and focus on the trip by Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. He spent a whirlwind 24 hours in the Swiss Alps, which ranged from handshakes with Jamie Dimon to burying the hatchet with Poland's President Andrzej Duda. Joining us now is our Executive Editor for Economics and Government across the Europe, the Middle East, Africa and Latin America, Flavia Kress-Jackson. Flavia, great to have you with us as well. What was it like for Vladimir Zelensky at the World Economic Forum? It was a fascinating sight, really, because Zelensky has, you know, is no stranger to trotting around the world and, you know, crashing various meetings or being invited at the G7s at the G20s. Um, he's a fantastic speaker. He's addressed uh, Congress. But, you know, of late, uh, the shine has come off him somewhat. And, you know, now he's not quite as, as welcome uh, as he was. You know, there was a, the wartime hero, the... In, in, in his combat uh, gear, uh, you know, it was very clear, for example, when he went to Washington, that he got just a very different welcome um, in Congress. Uh, you know, they were the money taps have turned off and the U.S. is far more reluctant now to disperse funds. So in that context, it was really interesting to see him absolutely dominate the agenda yesterday. And it almost felt like in a way he'd sort of learned some some of the lessons that he couldn't come across as pouty or strident that, you know, certainly uh, governments across the world, they still support them, but there had been a change of narrative, right? It was no longer uh, whatever it takes. It's like, well, we're trying to do our best. Um, and so with that, it was clear that he kind of knew knew his crowd. Um, and so he spent the first part of the day really kind of schmoozing with the titans of finance. I mean, what better way than, you know, have Jamie Dimon say, God bless you. And, you know, he, there was a lot of very, very positive noise around him. A lot of the execs that we spoke to um, who met with him behind closed doors said he was very excited. He has a plan. He was open and they were excited about sort of funding what essentially would be the second Marshall Plan. So investment on that scale on the corporate side. And then, of course, um, Perhaps some of the more awkward meetings were the ones with um, the U.S. officials and some of the European allies, where he's really pushing, saying, I really need help to stay in this fight. Um, Ukraine is running out of money, is running out of ammo. Um, And also there have been some tactical disagreements between the U.S. and Ukraine that, uh, you know, we... Bloomberg, you know, reported on and broken news on. So also that was an opportunity to have perhaps privately some of the most, some of those more uncomfortable conversations that, you know, even friends and allies need to have. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose that the, again, I want to ask the Donald Trump question. It's we're thinking about a change potentially of, of US presidency and, um, Vladimir Zelensky and Trump haven't particularly been friends. So I suppose it's very interesting that you talk about Zelensky talking to sort of Wall Street, as it were, in terms of getting the funding that he sees as absolutely necessary for Ukraine. What about that Ukrainian-US relationship as we get further into the year and next year? Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail absolutely on the head. I'm sure for Zelensky it wasn't lost on him. As he was arriving, this very important moment was happening um, over in Iowa, right? I mean, this is his first, this is his biggest nightmare. Um, 
if you go back to sort of the early days of when he himself went went to Davos, I mean, it, it, he was not really one of the big characters to watch out for. And all people sort of knew of him was essentially he was he was the guy who was getting bullied by the president of the United States to sort of, you know, you know, if you want some money, do me a favor and dish out on, on Hunter Biden. It was quite a shock if you're, you know, a rookie leader, you're better known as a, as a comedian who kind of now is thrust in and having a conversation with the most important man on the planet and, and you know, and it gets leaked to the to the world media. So that is Zelensky's sort of relationship with, with, with Trump. Um, Trump, of course, has not been shy about uh, praising Putin as a strong man, as, you know, as brave and all, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're Zelensky, you want to lock away as much support as you can. And if anyone is sort of preparing and girding for the eventuality, a possibility, um, maybe even for some inevitability of, of a Trump 2.0 presidency, um, it will be him. Flavia, you were talking to us about some of the support that was shown for Vladimir Zelensky at Davos. Of course, Ukraine heading into a difficult winter, the conflict continuing there, still a very difficult situation facing Ukraine. Is there a fear or any sign of fatigue in that support for Ukraine uh, from its allies? There absolutely is. I mean, I think there was a lot of Hope. I mean, perhaps outsides and, and maybe not entirely fair that this was the decisive year that you know you, you, that, that the Allies were putting it all and like this was the, this was the year where the pesky Ukrainians would break through with this counteroffensive and of course it became pretty apparent over the summer that that was not happening. And around that suddenly there was a change of narrative. It's like oh, you know, the war fatigue. Uh, the dreaded word set in. And initially, you know, no one really wanted to talk about it because it would feel like a betrayal uh, of the Ukrainians. But now, I mean, it was interesting to see uh, President Duda of Poland essentially say the quiet part out loud. And in a way, sort of owning that um, allows um, everyone to sort of have a bit of more of an honest conversation. And I think one thing that um, a couple of people remarked upon is it was very easy, for example, in Davos for the attention to sort of shift over to what is happening in the Middle East. Um, but Zelensky did a very good job of refocusing attention back to Ukraine, partly because he kind of presented it as an investment opportunity to the corporate world, and partly because he was also able um, to bury the hatchet, if you will, with um, with Poland. Uh, Poland was absolutely critical in, in a way, rallying support. So back in September at the margins, the um, uh, the UN General Assembly. It was it was quite a moment to sort of see Zelensky and 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 Duda kind of like just kind of annoy each other, and it was a sort of a moment of like actually you sort of need to make this relationship okay. Poland is right there um, it, with, with Ukraine geographically. It's also very very exposed. So in a way, if you're sort of losing such a firm advocate as Poland, you're in trouble. So the, the, his ability to, in a way, kind of turn that around and to sort of hug it out also speaks to the kind of pragmatism that Zelensky is going to need uh, to, you know, stay in this fight. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. 
our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.